Well, let's go ahead and get started in a word of prayer and we'll get into today's lesson. Father, thanks for bringing us out this morning and thank you for this day that we have to study and open your word. Grant us understanding. Thank you for your the fact that you've preserved your word through the centuries so that we may have it. We thank you for that opportunity and I pray that we take advantage of it, Father. We have a great treasure in our hands and we need to appreciate it for what it is. In Christ's name, amen. Um, last week we were talking about um, going through New Testament manuscript evidence and um, I'm just going to zip through a little bit of review today and then move on and then hopefully we'll get to canonization a little later this morning. Um, when we look at New Testament manuscripts, basically there are four categories. You've got the papyri, the unsealed or um, large case manuscripts. You've got minuscules and cursive, which are lowercase, and script manuscripts. The papyri are the oldest because they were preserved the longest in the driest climates back down in Egypt. And uh, they date to the second century, which is not too long after the church um, was founded in the first century. Um, some important ones are P52. And again, we noted that the papyri are denoted by a P with a number. And we have about 76 of these. So you have P1 through P76. The important ones are P52, John Ryland's. P45, 46, and 47 um, are important. They contain most of the New Testament um, in it. Not every manuscript has the entire book because they're very old. And what happens when you get very old? They get very brittle. You might lose a page or a leaf. Are they uh, in chronological order from the original? Uh, don't know. Usually when they find a papyrus, they take the next letter, the next number up and use it. You know, these are discovered. Papyri are discovered over a period of centuries, you know, so it's not like there's a chronology to them. So just because, uh, <laughs> well, P52 is the oldest one, but it's 52, so no, they're not chronological. Um, here's uh, what P52 looks like. It's a little scrap, and that is uh, part of the Gospel of John on there. I'm going to go through a little quickly on the papyri because we've already talked about it. Um, then you've got uh, P46 is part of the Book of Romans. Um, and this is, this is a codex. You can see in the middle here where it was like folded. But this is uh, Romans. Here's part of the book of Revelation. That, yeah. Okay. We'll find some. They're out on the website, by the way. I updated the website finally. Mr. Lazy, class teacher here, finally put everything out on the website. So it's all out there. Yeah. Yeah, did the attendance sheet go around? Okay. Got to do that or Dan, Dan will beat me up. Um, and then uh, here's uh, some other ones. 66, 72, and 75, the Bodmer. And these are the guys who, who collected them. Um, Bodmer is the one who collected this one. And uh, P66 is a real important one. It, it dates to about 200 and contains most of the Gospel of John. So when we look at the Gospel of John, this is the oldest um, record we have of that. Um, P75 has Luke and John. It is the earliest known copy of Luke, dated from about 175 to 225. You know, this is a hundred years after the New Testament authors. You know, so this is very close 
to when they were actually written. So are they all within the states then, or no? That that's the that's the date that we have on that papyrus. You know, you don't know the exact date. They don't have years of publication. You know, if you pick a book up now and it says Year of Our Lord 1975 was published, they didn't have that. So you you date it by the materials, you date it by the location. You know, there's all kinds of factors to go into trying to get a good date on these things. Um, and that's sort of the best guess here, really. Um, here's what P66 looks like, um, the Gospel of John. And then here's uh, P75, which is the Gospel of Luke, part of it. Um, so, again, these, aren't, these papyri, they're very important because they are really our earliest known record of the New Testament. All right. And putting them all together, we get most of the New Testament, most all the New Testament, with maybe a smattering of a few verses. Um, New Testament manuscripts, the next great set is the unsealed manuscripts. These are dated from about 4th to the 9th century. And the difference here is what? They're written on vellum and parchment, but why? Remember? Well, they got away from the deteriorating uh, uh, paper, the original paper. Yeah, they. There's no longer illegal. Yeah, there's no longer legal. And so what happened now is that Christianity's become a um, a legal religion, institutionalized. And of course, now you've got the entire weight of the Roman Empire and all the monastery. You know. You're starting to see the beginning of the monastic kind of things where you have people with higher quality writing materials and that they're able to produce these manuscripts. Christianity is no longer illegal. Um, and the way you denote these in critical texts, and we're going to, I'll show you what a critical text looks like later on just so you get an idea, but um, you have a number. They're either a number like a 030899 uh, or they're a capital letter. All right. Um, one of the things here is the most important of these were unknown. This over here, were unknown to the authors of the KJV. Um, we'll go through the whole KJV fight in a separate class coming up. But um, only D, Codex Bizet, was known to the KJV authors. All the the, the King James Bible is actually founded, or, or the, the text of it is founded on manuscripts that are dating from the ninth to the 15th century. So they're very late manuscripts. They didn't have hardly any evidence of the early ones. And the reason being is they just didn't have access to those manuscripts. They were in a different part of the world, inaccessible to them. We're going to talk about that. Huh? We'll talk about that. We'll get to that. I got I got to have something to keep you off of coming back. You know, <laughs> that's one of those things that will keep you coming back. We're, 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 we're really, we'll talk about the whole translation issue. Alright, so that's, that is coming up. Um, some of the most important of these are Codex Vaticanus, which is B or 03, either one of those. Um, it's the oldest one we have on parchment or vellum, and it really dates back to the time of Constantine, um, the emperor. 333 is the date, remember, when Constantine legalized Christianity. So it's right from the time of Constantine. Um, it contains most of the Old Testament, at least it, it's Greek. All right, so this entire text is Greek. It's not written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek. So the Old Testament part of it is from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And in fact, uh, the Septuagint was what's quoted in the, in the book of Hebrews. If you get the book of Hebrews, 
and all those quotes from the Old Testament, those are word-for-word quotes from the Septuagint, which is interesting. Um, it is missing a couple of section, a couple of passages. We're going to talk about these two passages: the woman taken in adultery and the long ending of Mark. Okay, those are the two that it's missing. This particular manuscript. Um, here's what it looks like. Here's the actual leaf from it. I don't know which. Uh, if I could sort through it, I might be able to figure out where it is, but I didn't do that. I don't know what page this is, but um, this is what it looks like. And you can see the high quality of it. All right. I mean, this is, you know, you got your good square parchment here, and the high quality of the lettering shows that um, somebody took a lot of care to produce this one. And that, that was in the Vatican? That was, in the, that was found in the Vatican Library. Yeah. It's found in the Vatican Library. You said it missing, but have we found them somewhere else? Missing, uh, uh. We're going to talk about those. Those are disputed passages. Those are. Remember, we said there's about 160 disputed passages in the New Testament. These are two of the biggies. All right. So there, there is actually a copy or something. There's later manuscripts that include these two passages, and there's a debate as to whether these two are part of the original books of Mark and John or not. And, that's still, and we'll talk about that's those. Still up for in the can. Yeah, but we'll talk about those. I don't want to spoil the fun right now. We will get to that. Um, what is, is it because of Constantine legalizing Christianity that everything is centered in Rome? A lot of it is. I mean, where do you, where do you have manuscripts at? Libraries, you know, or place. I mean, and again, they didn't have, every town didn't have a library. You know, you had Alexandria, you had Antioch, you had Rome, you had a few of them around the world at that time. So they collected, one of the things that was ha- happened is they would collect manuscripts and works in these libraries. They, w- they didn't have an index card catalog like we have, or you, know, you didn't go into a computer terminal and search the archives and see what you had. You know, you had shelves and shelves of manuscripts and books and codexes and rolls and scrolls and parchments, and they didn't find these till very late. All right? Um, Here's Codex, Codex Sinaiticus is another one. It was found on Mount Sinai. That's why it's called Sinaiticus. Um, and it's denoted by the Hebrew letter Aleph, or it's number one. This dates from about the 4th century. Um, it's discovered by Count Tischendorf. And they were actually using it to light fires. You know, they had these old papers laying around. They would use it to light a fire. They didn't know what was on it. And come to find out, it was part of the scriptures. And the first um, ones they found contained parts of First Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And then um, later on they discovered more of the um, Old Testament, all of the New. Again, half the Old Testament, LXX, that means it was not written in Hebrew. It was Greek. It was the translation of the Old Testament um, in the Greek. This again omits Mark, the long ending of Mark, and the woman taken in adultery. And it has, you know, three other um, scriptures here. Not scriptures, I shouldn't call it scriptures. But, you know, early on, we're going to talk about canonization later this morning. Um, Some people thought the apocryphal books were scriptures. They would include them in their their manuscript. Um, Now, later on, we have determined that apocrypha is not scripture. And we're going to talk about that. 
Um, Epistle of Barnabas and Shepherd of Hermas are two books that almost made it into the canon. They were considered very highly and regarded very highly by the New Testament church, but ultimately they did not get into the canon. But these are very um, well-known books and works. Mm-hmm. In the Greek-speaking parts of the of the empire, sure. I mean, they didn't know Hebrew, so they would use. I mean, the writer of Hebrews, <laughs> the book of Hebrews, didn't quote the Hebrew; he quoted the Greek, and it's word for word. I mean, if you take your, if you go back and look at the manuscripts of Hebrews in the Greek, and look at where he quotes the Old Testament, you take that passage and go right to the. Septuagint, it's word for word, letter for letter, what was there. So that's what they had. That, they, that's what they had. That's what they used. Probably many of the New Testament writers who did not know Hebrew used the Septuagint as their scripture. You know, so it, it was used, yes. Most likely, yes. Now, they do have early... Um, um, Egypt probably would be Greek yet. Um, only in Palestine would you really be using Hebrew um, much. Um, but mainly it was, it was in, the, in the Roman Empire as a whole, it was the Septuagint that was used. Okay? We don't use the Septuagint. When, we tran- when you started having the modern English translations, they would go back to not only, and this is the thing to understand, not only did they use the Septuagint, they also used the Hebrew Scriptures. They did what we call textual criticism to give us our Bible that we have today. So they did refer back to the Hebrew manuscripts at that point. Early on, you know, in Rome, you know, in the 320s and 30s, I mean, everybody knew Greek. Greek was the like the like English of the day. I mean, everybody knew Greek. So if you're going to um, transmit your scriptures, what would you use? You'd use the language that everybody can read and understand. You wouldn't write it in Hebrew and make people learn Hebrew. Um, although there were places where that was used, by and large in the empire it was Greek that was used. And of course the whole New Testament was written in Greek, so that lended um, support to making it um, Greek. Um, you have, uh, this is what Codex Sinaiticus looks like. Um, again, you can see the high quality of it. Um, written on parchment. Alexandrinus, this is found near Alexandria, Egypt. It dates from about the 5th century. Um, it was presented to Charles I of England in 1627, so it didn't make it into the text that we use in the King James translation. It got there a few years later. Um, it contains the entire Old Testament and New Testament with the exception of a few mutilated passages. And by mutilated, we mean, you know, they were tore or, or ripped or something. Um, it also contains a couple of other books with it. First and second, Clement. Clement was a, um, a disciple of Paul who um, ministered to the Corinth church. Um, and first and second, Clement were almost considered canonical at times. Um, but they did not make it into the final canon. And we have the Psalms of Solomon. Um, here's what Alexandrinus looks like. Um, that the Ephraimite rescriptus, what's a rescriptus? Right yeah, you write over it, you erase it and write over it. And you can see how it's been erased here and then written over. Okay? Um, I don't know where that came from. I don't know why they call it that. 
Um, you have Codex Bizet. This is the one that was used in the King James um, translation. Um, it's a bilingual manuscript. You have a few of these bilinguals where you have a column of Latin and then a column of Greek. All right, so you have a bilingual manuscript. And why was Latin used? Universal. That was the language of Rome, right? That was used in Rome. Um, and that's what the Codex Bizet looks like. Okay? And then over here, this is... Um, Right there is, that's Latin. Anybody read Latin in here? There's your Latin right over there. And then here's the Greek over here. Sort of like the first interlinear. You ever had one of those where you got four translations? That's what you had there. Um, there's another one, Claremontanus. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these. Here's Washington. Some, a lot of these are, are named for the places that they were found or the places that bought them or where they're at. So that's why you get the names here. Um, now let's look at minuscule. These are the lowercase manuscripts. They date from the 9th to the 15th. And there's a lot of these. Why would, you, why would there be a lot of these? Yeah, I mean, you're starting to get more and more people. You have the monastery movement where you've got copies going all over the place. Um, there's about 4,600 of these things. Um, you have about 2,600 manuscripts and 1,900 lectionaries. What's a lectionary? Remember what that is? A yeah, the early read through the Bible in one year, the lesson, where they would quote a few verses and then have a lesson. So like what we do in our church devotionals, where you have your verses and then you have a little lesson on that. Um, and what you start seeing happening here, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, and I'm going to try and make it completely non-confusing to you. So I'll see if I can succeed at that is um, you start to see textual families. And what do we mean by a family? Well, think of geography. All right? You have a group of people down in Egypt. You have a group over in Palestine. You have some over in Rome and some up in Asia Minor. And they're, they're isolated from one another. Right? I mean, they don't, they're not, they don't have the Internet. They don't have the commerce like we have today. They're isolated. So what would you expect the Scriptures to do as they're copied in those different regions. Yeah, they start. You start seeing certain textual families, certain you know minor alterations that that sort of collect in one area as opposed to another, and that's what these textual families are. Okay, we're going to talk about those. But and and again, the, the differences here are minute. We're not talking about doctrinal shifts or anything like that. We're just talking about you can tell like a a set of manuscripts, you can tell what area it comes from by the few little um, nuances that that manuscript has. And that's where you get textual families. All right? Dialectical things or spelling. You know, spelling error. Somebody had bad eyesight and they made a spelling error and then you have 400 monks that copy that manuscript and guess what? Now you've got 400 with a spelling error in it. We can pick those out. All right? But there are families. Um, you have the Alexandrian um, text. This is the uh, manuscripts down in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, these are noted by just small letters, 33. So you have 33, 128, 456, whatever. Um, this is called the Queen of the Manuscripts. It, it's a really high regarded manuscript. It was used, in the, I'm pretty sure, in the KJV. And it contains the entire New Testament with except except for Revelation. They don't have that, but it has the rest of 
of all of the New Testament in it. We have um, a couple of families. This is Caesarean. These are the Palestinian manuscript family. Um, a lot of times in critical texts you'll see an F1 or an F13. Those are almost identical manuscripts. I mean, pretty much identical. They're a family. Um, all date from the, the see family one from the 12th to the 14th century, and family 13 from the 11th to 15th century. All right. Couple thoughts. The family notion. I'm going to use a silly example, but if the manuscript had the word soda in it or the word pop, you could determine an area or a region yeah. or a likelihood. Mm -hmm. Okay. And secondly. Um, why wasn't Revelation? It, it might have just not. It just might have been accidentally omitted. Okay. Um, you know, they might not have had that those last few leaves or something like that. Um, so, you know, a lot of these manuscripts, you know, you don't have the full thing because think about it. You know, manuscripts are very expensive, extremely expensive, because um, they were handwritten. You had to write them by hand, um, and so a lot of times. You know, you took what you got. I mean, it's, it's like, um, you know, we hand out the Gospel of John. Somebody comes forward, we hand out, a, you know, a little Gospel of John. You say, well, what about the rest of the New Testament? Well, it, it's there, but we hand out a part of it. All right? And we, you, you see that same kind of thing happening here. Um, but these are manuscript families. Just understand that they're there. Okay? Um, and you can group them together and, and that. Um, we have the Byzantine Manuscripts, they're from the area of Constantinople, Byzantium, all right? And really, these, the, the Byzantine family is really what forms the basis of the KJV Bible. And this is where the big fight comes with the KJV only. Anybody run into a KJV only or no KJV only person? All right, they're out there. There, there are less and less of them, but they're there. They're very vocal about it. They froth at the mouth. They have, you know, wild eyes and they really, you know, go after. I, I say that sort of, you know, facetiously, tongue-in-cheek, but it is true. You ought to see some of the bandwidth. Go, go and look up KJV only in Google and see what happens. I mean, it is phenomenal, the number of websites and the number of people out there that advocate that if you use any Bible other than the KJV, you are using a satanic, you know, a satanic version. I mean, that's really what it is. Um, but the, the, the manuscripts underneath the KJV all came from the area of Byzantine. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Think geography. You're King James. You're in England in 1600. Where do you go get manuscripts? Yeah. You, you, had, you had the Eastern Church split and they came west with all their manuscripts and all of that because they had the... When was the fall of um, Constant, Constantinople to the... Um, to the uh, Islamic forces. And, 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 and so a lot of the manuscripts would come from there. You didn't have really any access to Alexandria, Egypt, for the most part. I mean, you know, there wasn't any commerce between England and Egypt. You, you used the manuscripts that you had. You used the ones you had available to you. And these are the ones they had, and this is what they used. All right? It's not evil or, or anything like that. It's just that's what it was. You used what you had at that time. These are the ones they had. And usually in a critical text, you have a BYZ connotation. I'll show you what that looks like. Um, where the, there's a variation that has BYZ, that says in the Byzantine manuscripts, that's what that 
reading is. It's all of them for the most part. It's a huge number of manuscripts, actually. And then there's another family that is a little bit different than the Byzantine, which is called the Western. That's over in the area of Rome. Now, when you look at these families, you need to understand the variations are very minute. We're not talking... Again, I've got to keep pounding this home because people, you know, if I don't, they'll forget it. We're not talking about theological changes. We're not talking about doctrinal differences. We're not talking about any of that stuff. We're talking about is little spelling differences, little nuances. You say soda, I say pop. You say tomato, I say tomato. You know, it's those kind of things there. It's not, we're not talking about theological changes. We're not talking about whole vast sections of scripture being missing. It's little things. And you expect that because as a manuscript makes its way over to some place and it begins to get copied into many things, you make one spelling error and this, it gets copied all over the place. And we can track all of those things back. You can look at it and see, you know, follow those threads back. So don't worry that somehow we're talking about vast theological differences or massive changes. Again, if you take all of these families of manuscripts, the Alexandrian, the Western, the Caesarean, the Byzantine, and you compare them all, the differences are minute. They're just not great differences. We're magnifying them for the sake of our discussion, but they're not that great. Okay? So don't, don't get too um, unnerved by this. This is what a cursive would look like. Um, it looks like, yeah, this is the Gospel to Luke. Um, you can see L-O-G-K-A-N right there. And that's Euangelion right there. Euangelion according to Luke. So this is the Gospel of Luke, first part. And you can see how it's, it's uh, scripted here now. You see the script connected together. So that's what a, this manuscript looks like. So the, the point here is we have thousands of these manuscripts and pieces of manuscripts and lectionaries. And we haven't talked about it yet, and we will. We, we also got translations. We got an Italian translation from the second century A.D. Of, I mean, not Italian, a Latin translation. We've got old Syriac translations in the ancient language of Syriac. We've got Coptic translations. We got, and, and, and when you put all of these things together, what you can do is you can, re, can reconstruct an excellent picture of what the New Testament originally was, what the text originally was. All right? We can reconstruct that, and we can get a high level of accuracy. And when you pick up a, a text today, when you, just about any translation you pick up, with the exception of a few, you can pick up any of those, and you can be assured that that is the Word of God. It's not something that's been totally you know, altered over the centuries, like the Discovery and History Channel would have you believe. That's not what happened at all. Okay? We have an accurate text. And um, if we had a few months, we could work through a text and you could learn Greek and you could see how this all works. But take my word for it. Unless you want to do that. And if you want to do that, have at it. Um, but we have a highly accurate text in front of us. There's no theological issues with it. Any questions on the manuscript evidence that we have? On just manuscripts in general or the evidence for them? Some of them have titles and some of them don't. It depends. So, really, uh, all the titles, well, some of the titles could be actually up for each individual's Yeah, scrutiny. Yeah, and, and again, you know, you don't need the title to know. I mean, I could give you, you know, 
15 verses just selected at random and you would be able to sort out where those are from. You know, if I give you 15 verses and say, okay, where is this from? You say, oh, well, oh, that's Luke. And you can find in Luke where those 15 verses fit. And that's what they do a lot of times. Again, some of these manuscripts are like a big jigsaw puzzle. you got these little fragments and you can fit them all together because you know where they land because of the text that's on them. It's like putting together a giant jigsaw puzzle. And, and in some cases they are named differently, like in Germany or wherever it is. Yeah. The Soviet Union, they, they, they don't call it, well, they call it first, second, third, fourth, it's kings. Yeah. Here we call it first and second. But it's the same book. Yeah. It's the same books. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, it's the twelve. We have, you know, Daniel, you know, Hosea, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Mike, Nehemiah, Ben, Zemah, Higgins, Malachi. They have twelve, the twelve, that's what they call it. Or in many cases, sometimes you would take a manuscript and you somebody come and you give them part of that manuscript to take and copy, and they wouldn't give it back. I mean, you know, you've got folks, you've got a thousand years of history going on here. You know, where you've got these manuscripts. Um, when we put them all together, we know what we have, and that's what we're going to talk about now. How do you know that this is the word of God that you have? Did we leave some chunks of it out that should be there, like the Gospel of Jude of all things? Whatever is the what's the new one? The Gospel of Jude or the Apocalypse of Jude. What's that new one that came out? Well, there's also the Gospel of Judas. Yeah, that's it. The Gospel of Judas. You know, where Judas was really the good guy, but the church made him look bad. Look, folks, yeah. we don't need to worry about that stuff. Thomas. Gospel of Thomas. So, any other questions on the manuscripts? I, I, I hope you found that interesting, that, that we do have an accurate history of these things. We're not just basing our Bible on somebody's ideas, but there's science behind it. Um, let's look at then the canon of scripture, okay? And the question we're going to ask here is, okay, we have all these manuscripts, we have, we have a room full of these manuscripts and we've got them all piled up all over the place. Which ones do we use as scripture? Which ones are our Bible? Which ones do we want to include in our scripture? And that's what we're going to talk about with the canon of scripture. Um, what the canon means, what is, does anybody know what canon means? C-A-N-O-N? Body of work. It, it was authorized, blessed, incorporated by the Council of Trent or mm -hmm. such councils of church fathers to who determined that these books were inspired. Okay. What's the word itself mean? Canon. I think of a canon. Yeah, I think something, you know, shooting a missile, you know. The actual word means a measuring rod. It uses a measuring rod. The question here is, what do we measure as scripture? That's the whole idea. And the process of canonization is the process whereby the books that we have, the works that we have, become part of what we consider as God's authoritative word to us. Okay? 
And when you look at canonization, one of the things that people want to do is they want to say, okay, what's the mathematical formula? What are the five criteria that I use and I can check them off and make sure, okay, this is in. This meets four or five, it's out. This meets three or five, it's out. Oh, this meets all five, we'll include it. It's not as simple as that. There are certain things um, that are used to determine whether something is scripture or we're used to, to what you want to call down to a short list. Anybody ever do any hiring? You know, where you have a stack of resumes come in like that, you've got to sort through them and you get your short list. Well, there are certain things that were used to get the short list. You know, um, one of the things was, was it written by an apostle or a prophet? That was something that was used as a short list. You know, if something was written by Daniel, whom you consider to be a prophet, that was considered a little bit highly than Joe Blow, who you didn't consider a prophet. All right? If there was such a guy named Joe Blow back then. But um, you would use, uh, you know, was it written by a prophet or an apostle or someone close to them? For example, Mark, who did he hang with all the time? Peter. Peter. All right. Who did Luke hang with? Paul. Okay. So that's one of the things you would use to get down to your short list. Another thing you would use is the claims of the book itself. Did it claim to be scripture? Did it, did there, was there an internal claim of authority to this book? Um, another thing, was it consistent with the rest of what you consider to be scripture, right? You're not going to include a book that totally disagrees with the rest of the Bible. That's, that's the whole silliness with the Gospel of Judas. Why would you include the Gospel of Judas that disagrees with everything else in the scripture? That's nuts. All right. Right. Way after. Yeah. Way after. Gnostic. It's a Gnostic gospel. Um, so these were used to get the shortlist, but then there are other processes that came into play in order to get our current set of books, and we're going to look at those. Um, when you look at canonization, there's three basic steps. One, God inspired the original text. Was God confused over what was scripture or what wasn't? No, he knew what was scripture, right? I mean, that's silly to think that God was confused by that. God knew exactly that when he inspired Isaiah to write Isaiah, that that was scripture. There was no doubt about it. Same thing with Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the other Old Testament writings. So God knew. God, God knew what was scripture and what wasn't. And then, after God inspired this work, it was written down. Then came a period of where that work was recognized by men as being different. As being scripture. This took a period of time um, in order for this to happen. Sometimes that time would be very short. Other times it might take a little bit longer. But there was a process whereby believers, Christians, through the centuries, would recognize, wait a minute, there's something different about Romans than the Gospel of Thomas. There's a difference between these two books. And there was a recognition. And who was guiding that? Holy Spirit was guiding it. Holy Spirit guided this. And then, when you started having these books that were recognized as Scripture, then how were they treated in relation to other ones? Special. Special. They had special care. You know, if the Roman soldiers come and say, okay, we're collecting Scriptures, what are you going to give them? The Gospel of Thomas or Luke? Neither. Give them the Gospel of Thomas. You know, let them think they have it. You know? Yeah. That's true. You know, there, there's... What books are you willing to die for? What works are you willing to die for? Really. And you see this happening in the early centuries of the church. And that's where our 27, our 27 books of the New Testament and 39 of the Old bubble up far above any of the other ones. It's not like 
you know, well, there's that itsy-beansy little difference between Revelation and Thomas. You know, Revelation just squeaked through. There, there's a vast difference between them. All right? Um, let's look at um, a couple of notes here. When you look at, by the way, when, when you look at the manuscripts and you look at the works that we have, we have the inspired biblical works, but there's a whole pile of other things that we have. We have things which are called pseudepigrapha. What do you think those are? What's pseuda? False, and pigrapha is writing. A lot of times these were writings that, you know, this, you know it's, it's like um, the, the Apocalypse of Moses. You're ascribing it to Moses. He didn't really write it. You wrote it. But you're ascribing it to him for hopes that somehow people will accept it as more valid than if you wrote it. You know? Um, yeah, pseudonym. You have a whole pile of pseudepigrapha. You have other Gnostic writings. We have a lot of different things. And there is a difference between the canonical, the ones that we include in Scripture, and the ones that we don't. And just because we don't include it doesn't mean it may not be important for historical purposes. You know, for example, the book of Maccabees and the Apocrypha is very important to help us understand historically that period between the Testaments. So history-wise, they're, they're, they're interesting, they're fascinating, they're helpful, but they're not Scripture. There's a difference between Scripture and history. All right? And just because they may be important to give us insights into what's going on, it does not mean that we include them as part of the canon and treat them as Scripture. All right? And another uh, marker, because I've got the lost books of the Bible at home, and they have to have hermeneutical... Validity. Right. They have to say things within the text that connects to the culture. It connects to people. It connects to places, and you know, so that you can slot them somewhere. Yeah. You know, it goes back to what are the what are the qualities of scripture? Scripture is inerrant, right? So if I have a book that has historical inaccuracies in it, is that canonical? Can it be? No. no. By definition, it's excluded. That excludes some of your apocrypha right there because they're historical inaccuracies. Um, if there's a theological inaccuracy, in other words, if there is some theology taught in this book that is nowhere else taught in Scripture, is that part of the canon? No. All right? Now, understand, that does not mean that every book in our Bible teaches every piece of theology, Right? But it does mean when you look at our Bible, when you look at the 66 books that we have, there is a cohesiveness to it. You don't have one book saying one thing and another one saying something totally different. There are no internal contradictions within Scripture. And when you start looking at books like the Apocrypha and you look at some of these other books, you find all of a sudden you have inconsistencies, you have historical inaccuracies, you have theological inaccuracies, you have things that don't fit. All right? And it doesn't take... A Bible scholar to see these. All right, it's not like you got to work long and hard to see the differences. Look, you can see the differences; they're there. Okay, um, they're glaring in many cases. All right, so that's why many of these are excluded. Um, the note here is there's a difference between the sections of the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, the Writing. When you look at the Old Testament, it's usually split up in the Law, the Prophets, the Writings, or some. And the New Testament was known as the Law and the Prophets. All right? What was the Law? Well, that was the books of Moses. What was the Prophets? Everything else. All right? And then in the Hebrew Bible, when they started to um, 
produce it. In fact, you can pick one up called the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-A, and don't ask me what each of those mean. Um, the T-A is Torah, that's the law. The K-H is Ketubim, which is the writings. And the N, I got this, the N is the Nebaim, which is the prophets. That's how they split it up. The law, the prophets, the writings. The difference being the prophets were mainly those prophetical books. The writings were like the history. Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, things like that. That's just how they denoted it. All right, that's how they split up in these big chunks. Um, and what you have is, is don't, the idea here is um, just because there's a difference in the Old Testament sections does not mean there's a difference in the way they were, each one made it into the canon. They were all considered canonical. They were all part of it. It's just their way of splitting it up. So when you see the law and the prophets and then someone says, well, what about the writings? Where did they go? Well, it depends on what era of time you're talking about. If you're talking about Christ's time, the writings and the prophets were considered one work. They were considered together. That's how they thought of them. Later on, the, the Jewish um, rabbi split up into the writings, which, made, which was a different section of the prophets, which was the historical parts. All right? Guess which one Daniel was part of? The writings. He was considered historical, actually. Um, When you look at the Old Testament, and this is going back early now, going back to the time of Christ, the Jews saw a twofold canon, a twofold division of the Old Testament. Um, the law and the prophets. You see Christ quoting this a lot. Remember? If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, well, what is Moses in that case? The law. He wrote the law. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe though someone rises again from the dead. All right? So even in the early New Testament times, when you see the scriptures quoted of quoted the Old Testament scriptures quoted in the New, usually they're talking about the Law and the Prophets, and this includes the entire set of the 39 books that we know now. All right. Um, in the New Testament, the phrase Law and Prophets refers to the entire Old Testament. Okay, and the Old Testament that they consider Scripture is the same Old Testament that we consider Scripture. They divided the books up a little differently because they put the Twelve together and they put Ezra and Nehemiah together, but it's the same stuff. It's the same books that we have today. All right, and that's why when you go to the Old Testament, um, when you look at an Old Testament Bible, you might or Hebrew Bible, you might see 22 books in the Old Testament. You say, wait a minute, I thought there were. 39. Well, subtract 12, subtract 11, and put Ezra and Nehemiah together, and you wind up with what we have now. Because they divide them up differently. And usually what they did is they, I think they considered the, like the Samuel together, and Kings together, and Chronicles together. But it's the same text, it's just divided up differently. Um, but the New Testament authors understood the Law and the Prophets referring to the entire Old Testament as we have it today. Alright? Um, how did the Old Testament develop? Well, there's evidence of a progressive collection of books which were considered to be scripture. If you, I'm not going to go through all of these texts. You can do that. Um, Deuteronomy, 2 Kings, Joshua. Um, for, like, for example, the law, the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, from the earliest times, that was considered to be scripture. That was collected as scripture. They were read as scripture. They became part of the religious culture of, of Israel. Um, and, when you, and then you had this idea of a prophetic continuity. For example, when Elijah came along, did he start saying things that no one else has ever said? 
No. All right. He might have augmented. There may have been a refinement, but there's not new theology. This, just, just an aside, this is something very, very, very important. All right. Every Old Testament prophet saw themselves in a, in a prophetic tradition of the rest of the prophets. They did not see themselves as coming on the scene and teaching brand new theological concepts. All right. Do you understand what's going on there? They did not break with the theological tradition. Now, Isaiah, did Isaiah predict things that Jeremiah didn't? Of course he did. But that's not new theology. Okay? They saw themselves in a prophetic tradition. And that's why when somebody comes along today, like the Mormon church has done, and I know this because I've studied it a lot, and they claim, well, Joseph Smith comes along and he says, well, you've got to understand that we lost part of the scripture, we lost part of the God's divine revelation, which I happen to have. And then you start looking at the Book of Mormon, you start looking at the writings of the Mormon church, and you find that there's a, there's a what I want to call a chasm between them and the rest of Scripture. You've got a problem, right? Because if God, if God were to continue to give revelation, what would it be consistent with? What He's already given you. Alright? So when you look at the Mormon church in particular, they have this concept of celestial marriage. Where's that at? Nowhere. They have the concept of a, you know, before time began, we were all disembodied spirits and, you know, floating around up there somewhere. And uh, we had a council. We decided how God would plan the world. Where's that at? It's not there. The concept that Jesus and Satan are half-brothers. Where's that at? It's not in the Bible. I don't know where. That's part of Joseph Smith's figment of imagination. See, it's, it's a total disconnection with the rest of Scripture. When you look at the Old Testament, when Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and these prophets came along, they saw themselves in a prophetic tradition that went all the way back. They did not make a break with it. In fact, the the Old Testament Scripture says if you have a prophet that comes along and starts teaching things contrary to what you've already known, what do you do to that guy? You stone him. You kill him. How's that? That would have solved a lot of our cult problems, wouldn't it, if we just killed these guys? I say that tongue-in-cheek, understand. Um, but the whole point there is that when, if you're an Old Testament prophet and you come along, I mean, there, there are passages you around If you have a guy come along and he starts telling you to go worship other gods that you have not known, what are you to do to him? Stone him. Kill him. This is serious stuff. So these prophets, you know, you know, Daniel did not come along and say, well, I've got a new theology of everything. No. Now, did Daniel give predictions of future events that the others didn't know about? Sure he did. But he saw himself in the prophetic tradition, along with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the rest of them. Do you understand what's going on here? So when you look at the Old Testament scriptures and you look at the prophetical writings, every one of those writings is written by a prophet who saw themselves in the traditional role of the prophet and were consistent with each other. All right? You didn't have prophets shooting off saying weird things that were just out of, that no one has ever thought of before. Now, the same thing with the New Testament. Does the New Testament give you new, brand new theology that you don't see at all in the Old Testament? Yeah, kind of, but then. But what is it? What was Jesus clarifying his stuff? It's a clarification, but it's not brand new. Do you understand the difference? I was thinking of the same thing. Yeah, it's a 
now, now, for example, in the Old Testament, we know that there's, a, there's an afterlife, right? And there's a resurrection. But you don't know much about that, right? Well, this, this fifth gospel is Isaiah. Well, Isaiah helps us traverse over to the New Testament. Yeah. What you see in the New Testament is you see a clarification and a focusing of the understanding. But you don't see brand new, heretofore unknown concept of who God is. You might understand, I mean, the Trinity, where's that at? Old and new. Omniscience of God, old and new. Yeah, all that stuff, old and new. And what you see in the New Testament, sort of what you see in Hebrews, God who at various times and various manners spake in time past by the prophets, now in these last days, has spoken to us by his Son. All of a sudden, everything becomes in a focus, so to speak. That was a little bit blurry in the Old Testament, but now you see it focused in in the New. It would be, oh, Would have, I think, a time to be like, is this right or not? Because it looks so different. Mm-hmm. And then when you have the Spirit, you see that it does come into focus. That's right. You don't have the Spirit. I mean, Christ said, search. He, he said, search the Scriptures. Yeah. And the Bereans, what did they do? They searched the Scriptures to find out if what Paul was saying was true. What Scriptures did they have? They had the Old Testament, folks. They did not have Romans. You know, that wasn't even written at the time that they were, the Bereans were there. So, they searched the Old Testament. Um, in Timothy, Paul says, you've, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. What Holy Scriptures did Timothy have? The Old Testament. Alright? And so what you see, even in the New Testament, the apostles saw themselves in the, in the revelatory um, tradition of the Old Testament. What they did, and they might have clarified, it may have brought focus, but it was not totally brand new, heretofore unknown concepts. Paul made a big deal of that. He said... You're thinking that salvation by faith alone is something new. What about Abraham? How was he justified? By faith. He wasn't justified by works. He was justified by faith. You fouled it up thinking it was works. But you go back and you look at him, it was by faith. And, and, and the New Testament writers do a tremendous amount of work, and I think rightly so, to show that this is not brand new, heretofore unknown things. It was a clarification, but it is in the tradition of revelation. I'm sorry. I was just thinking along the lines of what you said. I've heard some place along the lines that, you know, people in the Old Testament, they fell under the, well, for the most part, uh, they fell under what was called the covenant of classness in Robert, the law, you know, that from the time of Moses until Jesus, that just, you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And then uh, when Jesus came along, he fell under this new covenant of grace, and that's why God seems mm-hmm. to be different, you know, in the Old Testament. He seems to be we are going to talk about that. But you've got a good point. You've got an excellent. You've got an excellent point. One of the things. One of the things is is a lot of you know where I came from. There's there's almost like a discontinuity. We call it continuity, discontinuity. That's a fancy theological word. But the Old Testament, New Testament, there's a discontinuity between them. There isn't. There's a continuity. I mean, other than the fact that if they yes. just listened to their hearts and, and, and let the Spirit in, they would have understood. But they were so used to, okay, you know, the law says we should do this. So maybe that's why they like yeah. to say well, accepting yeah. But when you look at, the, for example, the book of Hebrews, the book of Romans, a lot of these books, the, the bulk of the book is given over to trying to link 
and successful in linking the New Testament with the Old. The New Testament is not a, a total re... You know, God changing his mind about everything. Um, it's a continuity between them. Okay? Yeah. Right. They missed it. Yeah. But what you see here, you know, th- this whole point here, the second point here, is there's a prophetic continuity in the old, and even in the new, the apostles saw themselves in that prophetic tradition. So the New Testament does not contradict the old in any way. That was the misunderstanding of Jewish people. It did not contradict it. And Paul went to great pains with the my whole concept of justification by faith. Wait a minute, how was Abraham justified? Well, he wasn't circumcised, right? So that can't be the cause of his justification. He was circumcised, what is it, 17 years after he was justified. So that can't be it. Um, he was not justified by keeping the law because there was no law to keep. That came with Moses. How was he justified? Well, he believed God. How are you justified? Well, you believe God. Now, what you may believe is different, but you still believe God. You still believe what God has revealed. So, yeah. Um, I want to make a point about how it was, it was the theological law to stone, you know, uh, false prophets, right? Well, even though, of course, these days we, we, don't, we don't stone people who don't believe the Bible, but... What we should do, and okay, what we should do and are doing when it's being done is to, you know, separate ourselves from that false doctrine, mm-hmm. right? Well, the thing that makes my heart heavy, and all of us probably in the room, uh, is that instead of doing that, which is a more humane thing than stoning them, I mean, yeah. just Okay. Um, uh, the thing that we're told to do is to tolerate them. Yeah. To, you know, just love. Israel was not told to tolerate false prophets. They were told to kill them. Because it was deadly. It's deadly. False prophets. And, you, and, you know, and that's not just me saying, you go to look at the book of Jude. The book of Jude has some very strong words to speak about cults and people these you know it's dangerous and, and we live in a world of toleration I could get on that soapbox and go for two days but we live in a world of toleration where we're told you know be nice tolerate people put up with their differences listen when it comes to heaven and hell you're right or you're wrong yeah you might you know you can be a democrat and go to heaven you can be a republican and go to heaven you get doctrine of Christ wrong you're not going to heaven you're not going to make it there you can't follow that one up. I don't know that we're called to tolerate that, though. To tolerate differences. We're not called to tolerate it at all. Right. Oh, except secular, secular. Yeah. But we are to. Yeah. But we are. We are to confront error. And what we have in the church today is nobody wants to confront error because it's not nice. Right. It's not a nice thing to do. We're not under a theocracy now. We're not under a theocracy, which is a difference. 
You know, but the whole point here is that when you, back to our canonization thing here, is that in the Old Testament you saw a prophetic continuity. Prophets saw themselves as part of a prophetic community. And there was a consistent message that was given by the revelation of God in that prophetic community. And then there's evidence, as far as the Jews were concerned, that when Malachi wrote his book, he was the last of the prophet, there was no writings after that date that were considered scripture. That was about 444 B.C. All right. There's no third division of writings in the intertestamental period that were considered scripture. Now, that's when the Apocrypha was written, by the way. All in that intertestamental time. Okay? But the Jews, and we're talking about the Jewish rabbis, the, Jew, the Jewish religion, did not accept any scripture after Malachi um, as scripture. Alright, that was the closing. And then in AD 90, there was a Council of Jamnia. This is a Jewish council. Um, officially made it official. This is all the rabbis got together and officially declared that they did not recognize any scripture other than the Law and the Prophets as embodied in our 39 books. This is an official statement. Now, it's not that, you know, that's when they decided it happened. See, that's one of the problems we have. The History Channel would like you to believe that, you know, a bunch of church leaders got together and they picked and chose what they wanted in the scriptures or not. That's not the way it worked. They got together and say, okay, what do we recognize as scripture? All right. It wasn't that they chose. Understand the difference here. It's not that they chose what was canonical. What they did is formulate what did they already consider to be canonical. Do you understand the difference there? What books are you using? What books do you preach from? And you have these 27 bubble up to the top. What about the Shepherd of Hermas? We don't use that. You know. It was a recognition. It wasn't a selection. It was a recognition. Council of Jamnia, they recognized this, the, the 39 that we have as scripture. Now, um, like you've got a whole bunch of fruit. Choose that which most represents apple. Yeah. And they, they, that's what happened there. And, and of course, what's God doing? God is superintending this whole thing. Um, the note here on the book of Daniel, um, Josephus recognized him as a prophet, him as a prophet. So that's part of the prophetical books. The Law and the Prophets. Alright, you had these other group of things that were non-canonical and people like say, well, the Jews really didn't accept Daniel's canonical. Yeah, they did. He was considered one of the prophets. Um, if the New Testament affirms all the books of the Old Testament, um, including those considered to be writings. Understand what writings are. Writings are that, that third division of the prophets there. That's what we're talking about. Okay? And you go, to the, for example, in the New Testament, I think it quotes from every book of the Old Testament with the exception of just a couple. So the New Testament affirms the canonicity of the Old Testament. Christ quoted the book of Isaiah. All right? Of course that's canonical. He quoted Genesis. All right? Deuteronomy. Um, so they, they, they recognize it as scripture. Um, Christ quoted from Psalms. Um, and according to Josephus and Talmud, what's the Talmud? Talmud is the um, sort of the commentary on the Old Testament written by the rabbis. All of them affirmed that the canon was closed with Malachi. The point of all this here, folks, is that the Jewish religious leaders, the rabbis, all of those, considered their Old Testament finished with Malachi. There was no continuing revelation. There was no new prophets on the scene. Malachi was the last of the prophets. That was their scripture. 
That's what they went with. And that was affirmed by the New Testament authors. It was affirmed at the Council of Jamnia when they just made it official. But it was always recognized as such. All right. So when it comes to the Old Testament canon, you've got them. You've got the 39 there. Those are it. Now, when you look at the extent, we'll stop with this. We'll pick up the finishing. We'll finish up the New Testament canon next week. We're about a half a week behind, if you notice. The, well, you don't know the schedule. I do. We're about a half week behind, but we're catching up. Um, yeah. The nice thing about this is we go to our guns. See, I don't have to finish at a certain time. It's the way, way it works. When you look at the canonization, and we, if you pick up a book on canon and all that, you might find these fancy little words here popping up. Homo logumina. Logumina means to speak of. Homo is same. All right. These are books that everybody recognized the scripture. There was really no debate. Nobody debated these. You know, you, like you got together. Anybody? Okay. Who thinks Isaiah is canonical? And everybody raises their hand. All right. There was no debate on this. Um, and when you look at the scriptures that we have, 34 of the 39 books of the Old Testament were without a doubt questioned by no one. Everybody just said, yes, that is definitely scripture. Definitely. The only books that you had that there was any you know, slight debate on were these five here. The Song of Solomon, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Ezekiel, and Proverbs. All right, those are the four or five books that there was any, any kind of dispute or any kind of question on. Why is that? We'll look at that in a minute. Um, there was some rejected by everyone. This is the pseudepigrapha. Nobody accepted this as scripture. Nobody recognized this as scripture. Um, you got fanciful stories, legends, um, things that are just full of errors. Nobody accepted this as scripture. They might say, well, yeah, sort of a fun story to read, but it is not scripture. They rejected it out of hand. And you can go and pick up a book on Old Testament pseudepigrapha. And some of the things are pretty wild that you find in there. Um, but the, nobody accepted those. Um, some of the Old Testament pseudepigrapha that exist, this is not a complete listing, this is just some of them. Um, there are certain legends. Um, the book of Jubilees is a book that sort of divides human history up into a period of Jubilees. Sort of like, a, like the, the early dispensational, hyper-dispensational look at things. Um, the letter of Aristius. I think one of these here is the story behind the Septuagint. I, forget, I think that might be the one. Um, the book of Adam and Eve sort of embellish life of Adam and Eve a little bit. Um, you have apocalyptic books, First Enoch. The Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs is supposedly a, a, um, an extended uh, like testament of all of the twelve original patriarchs, Judah and all of them, where they wrote certain prophetic things. Um, you've got some teaching, Third and Fourth Maccabees. You've got some poetical. And, and these are just fragments. These are, nobody accepted these as scripture. They were stories, they were legends, but no one said that these were scripture. They were just rejected. Um, some books were disputed. This is called the anti-logumina. What's anti mean? Against. So these were books spoken against. Homo-logumina, everybody said they're scripture. Anti-logumina, some people spoke against them. Now again, it does not mean there was a violent debate. It's just that there were some questions about these books. What about the Song of Solomon? Well, anybody who reads the Song of Solomon in their right mind say, wow, you know, that's pretty graphic. You know, yeeks. You know, 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's wow. You know, if your marriage is having a problem, you need to read that together, you know. Um, it was considered sensual. And so some, you know, some of these, you know, stuffed shirt, you know, rabbis thought, wow, you know, that doesn't belong in Scripture. But it was considered Scripture. And by the way, you know, God does not frown on that kind of language between a husband and wife. I mean, that, that's part of his created order. There's nothing wrong with that. We make it wrong because of our sin. But there's nothing wrong with that. So there, there are some people that, wow, that's a little bit too graphic for me. But um, it, it, made us, it was considered canonical in the end. Um, Ecclesiastes, when you look at Ecclesiastes, you get depressed. Uh, if you read Ecclesiastes, when you're done, you want some Prozac or something, you know, to, to get through there. Because, you know, Solomon says, well, you know, that's uh, 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 so what he say, uh, a live dog is better than a dead lion. Wow, you know, that, that's really, you know, sheesh. Um, it, it sounds very, very, uh, very depressing. But if you understand what Ecclesiastes is about, it makes sense. Ecclesiastes is written from the viewpoint of the human condition without God. If you don't have God and there's no God around and you sort of don't believe in God, well, guess what? Life is vanity, isn't it? You work your entire life for something, only have a poof at the end. Like your stock market value. Um, life is vain. You understand that. But early on, you know, they had to sort through that. Um, Esther, it's interesting, it doesn't have the name of God in it. It's not anywhere in there. However, what is Esther a story about? God's providence, how God protects his people. All right? But there, the name of God wasn't there, so they had a difficulty there. Um, Ezekiel appears to be somewhat anti-Mosaic. <coughs> the idea there is that Ezekiel appears to contradict the law in certain places. But again, if you sort through it, you find out that there's no contradiction. Oh, it's mainly the same kind of um, stuff that they say about James and Romans being in odds. They're not. You just got to understand the context. And when it does, these disappear. And Proverbs um, was thought to contain contradictions, you know. And in some places, that, you know, it, the, the proverbial sayings seem to contradict one another. But then how do you sort that out? Well, you sort out by context and understand what's a proverb? A general truism. All right? They're not meant to be solid theological statements. Train up a child in the way which he is to go when he's old, he won't depart from it. How many of you trained your children upright and one of them went left when they should have gone right? It's not a guilt-edged promise. It's just generally true. If generally you raise your kids right, generally they'll turn out okay. But not all the time. You, sometimes you can do everything right and you've still got one that just wants to go their own way. You know? And so that had difficulty because of that. But in the end, it was considered Scripture. And then there were some books that a few people accepted, but by and large, no, they didn't accept. Um, and that's apocryphal books. Um, these apocryphal books are here. Here, we'll give you all the reasons why the apocrypha is not scripture next week, because I can't do it this week. But these are what you find in the Catholic Bible, for example. Um, you've got the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Tobit, Judith, First Ezra. 1st, 2nd Maccabees, Baruch, Letter of Jeremiah, 2nd Esdras, and then additions to Esther, the prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and Dragon, the prayer of Manasseh. Some of these are pretty fun stories to read. What kind of, what 
but um, Catholics, we'll talk about this. I hate to say it. I, keep, I hate saying we'll talk about this next week, but I just can't fit everything in. But next week we will go through the reasons why it's not scripture. Catholicism, you understand, the church as a whole did not accept this as scripture. It was put in there by the express dictate of the Pope in the 1540s in the Council of Trent to um, react against the Reformation. Because a couple of these books teach things like indulgences and stuff like that, which is an underpinning of Catholic theology. So they said, this is going to be scripture. Although all the people there said, no, it shouldn't. The Pope said, yep, you're going to put it in. So they did. So that's why you got it. It includes these. This is the Apocrypha. Yeah. And there's 12 of them, I think. It's spread out through their Bible. Yeah. Sometimes it's spread out through their Bible. Sometimes it's a section between the Old and the New Testament, depending on what Bible you pick up. But this is, And we're going to go through these next week and show why they are not Scripture. So, All right. Well, let's close in prayer. We're out of time. And we'll pick it up next week. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study your word. We are amazed at how wonderfully you have preserved it for us, how we have exactly the books that you want us to have. We have your word to us. We don't have to worry about missing pieces of it. We don't have to worry about an incomplete Bible. It is complete because you made sure it would be. I just pray that we would have confidence in that. Thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen.